gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode the the Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. This is a special <laughs> review episode for Mockingjay that has no main episode attached to it. We just are here to talk to you about Katniss and PETA because we care about them so much. And Gale. And Gale. Oh, yeah. And Hamish. Who gives a shit And President Gale? Snow. And Nobody Plutarch. And Finnick. Yeah. And Effie. Wow, and you BT. Just, you just rattled off an impressive right, number no, of hundred No, he made, he made the last one up, though. No, BT? No, BT's real. <laughs> That's Jeffrey Wright. Oh, okay. Oh, they're all fun names. Um, anyway, Mockingjay, it is, as you might know from the title, the first part of the final installment of the quadrilogy makes me want to die every time I have to explain these things. Um, at the end of Catching Fire, Katniss was in the arena. She blew up the arena with her arrow, and then she got transported via hovercraft to the previously <laughs> unknown to exist District 13. I really wish I had you watched Catching scoff Fire. At the basic plot exposition. No, I know. I just wish I had watched the movie because it kind of picks up in the middle of something that I didn't really. I couldn't remember. Wait, you saw Catching Fire? No, I you? definitely saw Catching Fire. Mm. I just don't like remember exactly the what movie, happened in the final three minutes, which the matters. movie takes no pains to reacquaint audiences to this story. It, it starts uh, in media res, and uh, it assumes for the first twenty minutes, I could not be bothered to remember what happened at the end of Catching Fire, and it. But it does lot, rely so. on that, right? You're you're saying that it you, you do like, need I to mean, know. Well, I mean, I, like basically, all you need to know is that she's out of the arena. There's, you know, a revolution was starting in the previous movie, which was a major theme of the previous movie. You couldn't really forget that. And that uh, PETA was not rescued for the arena with her and is being held. <laughs> Do not overestimate what I can forget or underestimate <laughs> no, I feel what the I same can way. about the Hunger Games. There's all these really? details so about, like, who's on what by? team on Catching Fire. And I'm like, Jesus, I, more so than, say, the Pretty Harry Potter movies. Oh, team. no, I wasn't confused at any point in the movie. I was just – it just took me a little while to gain my bearings again and remember what had happened. Right. I mean it's, it's that's, certainly that's clear side, who is on whose side and why, but it, it just took me a minute to remember the light. And they, and they eventually they say, like, remember, you shot the arrow into the sky and then this and this and this. And I was like, okay, got it. Well, yeah, I mean, I did. I wasn't lost, but then again, I read the books, so I would have more bearing. But I also, I don't feel like they owe it to you to really give you the full rundown, right? Like, no, isn't it safe to assume fine. that you've? It's just a testament to how uninteresting the previous movie was. Yeah, I I tend to agree with that point. <laughs> As a um, it's the so same reason what, why I you know would not have needed a primer going into the third Lord of the Rings movie, but will I'm sure. Uh, be desperately out of the loop when uh, the third Hobbit movie starts. And I like oh, Desolation I have, of Smog. I have no idea what happened in Desolation of Smog. Not a clue. Um, so what I find interesting about this movie is that it is, uh, the structure of it is vastly different from the first two movies, which are in some ways the same movie. They go into the arena. They're forced to fight. There's a kind of a twist at the end of Catching Fire, but it's a lot of the same stuff. In this one, it's taking place almost entirely in this under, underground uh, district where they are basically preparing for war. And I keep comparing it to the way that the Empire Strikes Back opens up with all of them on Hoth and they're all kind of preparing for this. You know, they're getting their you know, aircraft ready and I'm going to mess up the Star Wars details, but you know what I'm talking about. And I was, even though 
almost nothing actually happens in this movie. There's a couple skirmishes. Om- Kat- almost Katniss- nothing. <laughs> well, then you are le- extremely Katniss generous. Learns to accept her role as the face of the propaganda for this movement. She kind of establishes the Mockingjay. She with, has a name. Uh, the president, who's played by Julianne Moore. Will you please stop interrupting me? <laughs> and. Uh, eventually they get PETA back from the Capitol in a rescue sequence. But I thought it built up a good momentum as a sense of building up to something. Like there's these, you know, occasional battle scenes throughout the middle of the movie that are, you know, interesting for slight character development but don't actually have much impact and then PETA's rescue sequence. And I felt like I was watching something happen even though all the characters are staying pretty much in the same place. And I felt like it very nicely positioned itself for the final movie, which is just going to be basically a giant battle and that movie's going to have all kinds of problems for various reasons that are technically spoilers for this movie. I can tell you guys about them later. But I think it moved up to that point really well. I don't think it totally merited being half of a movie, but no. I was surprised by how little I was bothered by it. You guys felt the opposite. Well, I, I don't have too many. I'm, I'm probably in between here. I'm, I'm assuming, David, that you hated this movie based on your tone throughout the opening. Uh, I mean, uh, I but hate, I don't have I don't too many. Hate, I don't have too many bad things to say about it. I don't have anything to say about it. Yeah, it's just <laughs> it, it actually felt like a straight adaptation of a book because it's rambling and there's just so much. Like we're going into this room and then we're going to go to this location and like operating in a way that a movie wouldn't like yeah, we see Katniss return to District 12 to witness the horrors of President Snow's destruction. You know, there's skeleton remains and blown up building. It's like it's like Kosovo or something. It's horrible. The horrors. And she gazes upon these landscapes filled with skeleton bones and cries so much close up Katniss crying in this movie. Uh, and then the, they return to this exact same location and use almost the exact same shots again and more horrors and more crying and I just felt like in in a sharper boiled down adaptation of this book we wouldn't have this kind of repeated nonsense and this familiarity to places we've already been previously in the movie and it just felt it was kind of like plowing dirt at times there's nothing (laughs) wrong with this movie I like the characters especially Philip Seymour Hoffman who's really good in this movie and I I actually like Liam Hemsworth in this movie no you don't quite a bit yes they have a like a very cute kiss scene where he's like no no don't kiss me don't Uh, and then walks away a brood and such, and I thought he was pretty good. He's but the there's nothing, by nothing happened in this movie. It, it is, is bad a, on that way. In that, it way. is it is an objectionable thought that this could not have been. This whole book could not have been one two hour and forty five minute. Or I didn't three hour say movie. that. I think it definitely should have been. I'm one not. Movie. A, I'm not accusing you. I'm accusing the people who made it and are trying to sell us on their intentions. And I I get the sense that. They have drank the Kool-Aid and uh, sincerely believe, you know, there's not maybe at the top of the studio level, there's a cynicism there. But I think that um, the director, Francis Lawrence, probably sincerely believes that this is uh, the best interest of telling the story in a cinematic way. But this movie, if you were able to see it with uh, from from a detached perspective is exhibit A as to how really the only exhibit there could be. Uh, no, to, Harry Potter is exhibit A. Oh, well, I mean, I meant for the Hunger Games in particular. Oh, but yeah, sorry. no, okay. I mean, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, though, you know, I, I have a lot of reservations about that first movie, 7.1. See, I like but, 7.1. Um, At least no, they feel still, like two distinct movies. Exactly. No, they don't. No, they what? do. They do. And, and there's enough happens, even if it's not handled in the best way. Enough happens in that first installment for it to justify being on its own. It still builds to uh, you know, a marked anticlimax that um, 
feels like the movie was a glorified setup for the for the final one. But uh, this does not feel like a movie. I was so lost as to where I was structurally. And again, like I am all for unconventional structures and approaches. But the thing is that actually the movie has a structure that's very similar to a traditional blockbuster structure. Everything is just dialed down as far as its importance to uh, you know infinitesimal levels. The big climax of this movie is like. It, it, to call it a set piece, it would be being very generous. It is. It is a moment. It I is wouldn't a, even know what you were referring action. to. Exactly the rescue um, sequence. Right. Oh. There, I do think that you know, as far as like uh, uh, propaganda one hundred and one, there are some. I, I enjoy the fact that a major blockbuster slowed down and really focused on character work and focused on ideas and playing them out. I just don't think that they're played out in a remotely sophisticated or interesting way. Well, they can't like crescendo to anything in this movie, which is perhaps the problem. I wish the whole prop- making propaganda videos is the thrust for Katniss in this film. Right. That and seems it, for great, me, right? It, it seems like a great idea, and at first, I'm, I was kind of into it, but then it started feeling like a repeat of the themes of the first movie about like reality television and saving your skin through the media. I'm, I'm not seeing them find new avenues for this same theme. And maybe right. it, they needed to like cast a few fingers at the people she's aligning with, the heroes, quote unquote heroes, and and damn them a little bit more and, and play give, with – Give it time. It, 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 well, it gets there. I thought at maybe. the end of this movie it does sort of implicate or infer that, that you know it implicates her – friends and infers that she has been manipulated as well, even if it were to ostensibly more positive uh, ends. But uh, I thought that scene, that's the best scene in the movie by far, is when they're shooting the fake propaganda. And I don't buy I don't buy Jennifer Lawrence's bad acting for a second. It's like bad, bad acting that sort of reflects uh, the transparency of the whole exercise. Uh, but still, that, that scene with a surprisingly animated Philip Seymour Hoffman, I sort of crudely assumed that Philip Seymour Hoffman would be uh, rough and sort of, mean. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Just sort of like zonked out, you know? Like, given his <laughs> he state was, of the he time. Was, he has so many smirks and smiles it was like watching him in the ides of march again because he's, he's like really standing lively. on the sides and clapping for julianne moore's president character and he's so thrilled when she gets the lines right i really enjoyed him yeah it's a fun uh, magnolia or boogie nights throwback putting them together uh yeah. but uh liam hemsworth i mean it's it's Aww. oh it was almost boring to call him boring now because so many people have done it Aww. but jesus i like what uh, what a katie stand with me here nah, i mean I, I think gail is an interesting character because peter sucks but peter sucks. Um, they both suck both so super bad boring and, and also I mean, there's a great moment in this movie where you get to see uh, Katniss and Gale kind of go into action together and work together in a way that like is said a lot in the books and in the movies, but you never actually see. And I thought that was interesting. Like I like yeah. the idea of a action superhero movie where it's a couple and they're going around shooting. But even that arrows. action beat is not is truncated because, and this has been the theme of all three movies so far, uh, that Katniss should not be fighting. Which no. means she tries to remove herself from all action, and when she kind of inches forward towards an action beat, I mean, she has a moment, a, an explosive moment in this film. But again, it's all about not per, uh, confronting, not pursuing, uh, and that's it doesn't make for a good action movie. Yeah, it's also. Um... <sighs> You know, the movie ends on a really frustrating note. It, it's exactly – the end is exactly the same as the end of The Matrix okay. Reloaded. Oh. It's uh, the same device. It ends on pretty much the same beat. 
it's and if you were frustrated by that, and dear God, do not stay for the end credits of this movie. After which you are treated, they are eternal. There's a post credit scene. No, you are treated to like a sixty second animation of the Mockingjay pin being lit on fire, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, which is really but, funny because it happens many times in the movie. And I kept thinking, like, this is the greatest film ever made about promo videos that studios make to. Pr- to, to push their films on the internet or like motion <laughs> posters. There are several motion posters hanging Not in the, the walls well, of yeah, District no. 13. <laughs> I think that's spot on. And I, I think wish the, it was movie... commentary on that or had like, it was a little more self-aware of what it was playing with. It just doesn't seem like it's really biting into this uh, satire at all. It's all just the there. sales tactics that they are sort of mounting in the film are exactly the same sales tactics that have gotten people so excited to see this movie in the first place. Well, and that's been like a crazy discrepancy within the studio marketing that they've never managed to address. Like, that they have partnerships with CoverGirl and this is a movie all about like the terrible ways that capital manipulates people. Like, they've never been able to get around that and it does become more and more obvious in a movie like this where it's actually about propaganda that like the studio can't totally criticize it because they're part of a really similar system. Yeah, and um, yeah, the, there's an element of the story where it eventually builds uh, involving brainwashing, and it reminded me. And I include, you know, a rather rather revered film like The Manchurian Candidate in this, in saying that brainwashing is never interesting cinematically. It just isn't. There's no way to make it interesting and not feel like a cheap cop out. And all the shit with PETA and everything that comes out is so boring and PETA is so boring and Gail is so boring and I just was desperately wishing that Katniss was hooking up with uh, Jeffrey Wright or Philip Seymour Hoffman or or definitely um, Woody Harrelson his character is a lot of fun. Um, that, you want her to be hooking up with them, though. Oh, That's, whatever. Not. Okay. It doesn't even need to be sex. <laughs> Just like you know I, that she cared maybe about that because I, I, you know, so much of this movie is about her being like, I don't want to play your political games. I just want Peta. I just love him and I want him to be safe. And you're like. No, like if you like that's a terrible thing to say. First of all, you're you're putting all these people's lives at risk over this, and they tell her that multiple times, right? And she's just like, I don't care, and that's cool. You're a teenager, you're an idiot, I get it. But there's they're so boring. She's boring as a result of that because her likes reflect the <laughs> shitty men that she likes. All these fucking people. I just hoped that they were found out and bombed, and I was rooting for President oh, Snow. Oh, come on. And oh, wait. I, wow. I want to hear more from the Katie. Third movie, because... Or the fourth movie is just them being slowly <laughs> annihilated. You might I, be surprised by how the fourth I, I want to know more, Katie, about what held your attention here because I just found – the movie to be very repetitive, not offensive. I mean, even like the photography. You know what? If Veronica Roth, the writer of Divergent, was not part of the Lionsgate family now, she would be sued out of her mind over this movie. This movie looks exactly like Divergent, and it's so stale. And I mean, Francis Lawrence tries to do what he can um, in, term, in terms of camera work, in terms of livening this thing up. But like, what is gripping you here? What's keeping you on the edge of your seat? Or what is like I emotionally mean, interesting? I don't even think Katniss goes through very much in this movie. She's crying a lot, but it doesn't seem to stem no, from anything. She doesn't go through very much, but what intrigued me was the sense of everyone kind of being put in their places for battle, as I said at the beginning. And I think it's, it's hard to separate that from me knowing that there is a battle coming, although I think everybody knows that that's how the series ends. If you know anything about how structure works um and the yes. way that she kind of like vacillated between her loyalties to her sister i mean there's this like it's expressed in kind of dumb ways like there's a, a tense sequence where she's running up to find her dumb sister because her sister went to go get the cat um when they're there's going so down much to the cat bunker. in this movie i know well, the cat you know love that cat um 
but this, you know, the sense that she's trying to kind of like answer the calling that's been given to her since the beginning of the first movie. And what really gets irritating in the books is how in her head she's constantly complaining about stuff and constantly saying like, well, I don't care. They'll kill me, whatever. And Jennifer Lawrence helps us get around a lot of that by kind of showing Katniss's stubbornness and cynicism with her face, which I really appreciate having kind of suffered through a lot of dumb internal monologue within the books. Um, and the action sequences, even though they don't really move the story forward that much, I found compelling. I liked watching Katniss and Gale go into action and the way that the bombing of the hospital was shot. And I liked the rescue sequence in the Capitol and, you know, Donald hmm. Sutherland being on the screen taunting Jennifer Lawrence while the whole thing is happening. There's a way in which you just get to watch all these actors bounce off each other. Like there's a scene just between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Julianne Moore where they're talking to each other about Katniss that I thought was fantastic because you just get to watch them these great actors in this insane circumstance, like making it really believable and, you know, playing off all of these tensions. Like Elizabeth Banks, that character uh, isn't in. It's like one of those. Oh, go. Okay, so Effie doesn't make it in District 13 in the book. She's gone by the time this happens. Right. And they bring Elizabeth it, Banks back because, she, yeah, yeah, she's dead by the time uh, the huh. third book starts. Well, um, but thank they, God they did because they no, have to. They well, not only that, but they needed her uh, as sort of a depository for lines intended for Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Oh, is um, that is that how that happened? Yeah, because he he shot. I think it was like 42 out of 50 days and rather than, you know, try and CG Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, which, you know, good luck, they uh, divvied up his remaining lines amongst some of the other characters who it might make sense oh, to that's, have. And, that's interesting. Uh, Elizabeth I didn't really was, notice anything like that I watching. didn't either. You're right. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think that it was anything too major. But, I mean, yeah, there are some very strong adult actors in this movie. Um, I don't think the material they, – they elevate the material a lot. Absolutely. Um, but I think when you watch something, you know, and this is a connection I'm making just because they're in the YA worlds together. But, like, this is really – child stuff compared to even Harry Potter. I mean, looking at the cast oh, there and these certainly. adult actors, the material they have to work with, it's just like, how do you show up to work in the morning uh, as somebody on the crew of this movie when your product is so subpar compared oh. to that? I don't know. Oh, and I don't no. even love that. I mean, like, I have a special... <laughs> how do you I don't show know. up on the work? I, I, you get paid. That's how you show up. I, how do you show I up know, to work, David? Well, no, I know. I just, I think that the uh, the YA game, the bar is is not nearly as high as it should be. Um, is really what I is what I mean by that. Um, and, I, I think yeah. there's. I think this movie flops a little bit because there are failed opportunities. I want to go back to something we were talking about right at the beginning, which is my confusion and not quite confusion, but just like the bridge between Catching Fire and um, Mockingjay Part One. Uh, no, it doesn't need to explain. You know, it doesn't need to hold my hand as I get into this movie. But the you know when we pick up with Katniss, first scene is her suffering from some sort of like PTSD of losing PETA, Which and then we saw her she doing later, in the second movie. Too. She was she's been suffering PTSD ever since the first movie. I guess, but that that just felt like really. I didn't feel like there was foundation there, emotional foundation to kind of like lead me into this moment and something that was going to carry her through this movie. And especially when we see Finnick, played by Sam Claflin, also suffering from like PTSD of losing his girlfriend. It just didn't feel founded to me. It may have happened in the other movie, but there has to be something. I just feel like there are missing beats in the kind of first act of this movie that don't really carry it or thrust it forward to give it a problem that's going to be solved before the credits role even if it's going to be a part one like something that she can overcome and step out into the next movie with i don't know it just felt well now she's overcoming yeah. i felt like the, the job wasn't person. done in the beginning like, what of wouldn't the movie. that why wouldn't that compel you into the next movie 
No, it really, it really never feels like more than an advertisement for the next film, and I think that's really the most damning thing you could say about it. I mean, we have the privilege of of doing of going to these movies for work, and I think I was actually saying this. I don't know, this is like two times in a row, which is a bad habit, but it put me in that in that frame of mind of someone who's paying money to go out. And I guess by this point, you're commit if you're paying twenty bucks to go see a Hunger Games movie, you're in it for the long haul. But um, it, it really does not feel like a satisfying experience in any way and it's just a lot of i think patches is right on the money and that it's a lot of tire kicking or dirt shoveling whatever his analogy was um i think that this really could have been cut down to an hour and like a nothing would have been lost and you you could have had a full movie you get things that they're able to do with it that aren't in the book that I think add a lot to the world a bit. Like the whole sequence where she sings at the quarry and they get you kind of see that turn now, into this propaganda film. Like that's she sings in the quarry in the book and you kind of see that scene happen, but the entire like attack on the dam that we see happen from there isn't in the book. And I thought it was really well filmed. It gave a good sense of scope to this world and I thought it did a nice job of making it feel like you weren't trapped in the bunker with these people forever, I, which is how the book feels. I think that scene's really interesting because on one hand, I did find it very moving because the song is – is I mean, it's just a rousing little number that she Written sings and it kind Lumineers. of opens up. Oh, really? No, okay. yeah, yeah. That's, that's fun. That's, um, she's got, and she's got a really nice singing voice. Well, she's voice, got a I'm nice sitting voice and, and then it blossoms into a big group of people chanting this as they're marching. I also felt that it was kind of just emotionally vacant because I don't understand why Katniss is singing. She doesn't sing ever before. Uh, she's just singing yeah, so that it can open to, up into this in other – what she sings that lullaby to Rue as she's yeah. dying or something? Yeah, okay, that's a big fair enough. I, it just didn't. And so, what this movie does a lot, and I've seen this scene already in the movie. There's so much parallel action in this movie, and I found it very strange. And because I think it's a way of kicking the movie in the butt and trying to make things that aren't really exciting more exciting. So it happens with this song. She's cutting back and forth between the propaganda video and the erupting crowds of people who are coming out. And then later we see Sam Claflin give this speech during this kind of um, intrusion scene. Um, the, the, you know, the SWAT team of District 13 is busting into a building and Sam Claflin is giving this speech that has absolutely nothing to do with anything. And it sounds very concerning, like he's about to blow a secret or or ruin the mission maybe. It's creating tension just by having this dynamic movement back and forth between two parallel actions. But it they don't make sense, and none, none of it really does. And you see it multiple times in this movie just using the momentum of parallel action, but it not really being effective. And for me, that just comes off as, as lightweight and lifeless. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the parallel action in Interstellar where you're cutting between Jessica Chastain and Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, that oh, doesn't make oh. sense. Uh, I mean, while I don't disagree with that, I think <laughs> to compare this movie to Interstellar in the same breath is really uh, around the bend. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying uh, to think know, of the beautiful the, I, the beautiful I, shot in Mockingjay Part 1. What What is and, the and moment the, of beauty in this movie? Well, I, the, the really – the really, what what is all all these people on Twitter as we're recording this are like you know who gets my vote for MVP for Mockingjay is Gail. What movie? Yeah, thank what you. Movie did you guys? They're see? with me on this one. Up for boring white guys. Team Gail um, after Mockingjay Part One. He rules. The sad thing is that you know I've given a little bit over six hours of my life to this movie series now, and uh, I re- I really have to see the next one. Um, not out of any deep abiding desire, but just to. Get closure, I suppose. Not. I already know what happens. I just. I need to uh, see this thing out, and that's that's frustrating. I feel trapped. 
Um, <laughs> Whatever. I know, but I'm just I'm so bored already of the next movie. But I assume things, you know, by by, by nature, things will happen in the next movie, which she will, gets crazy uh, in the next movie. We'll make it different than this one. But, but I would love. Oh, how satisfying it would be, given how you know this whole series is predicated on a love triangle, and I know how that love triangle resolves. But just to fuck with the fans, which is of course what Lionsgate has in mind, uh, if they just completely change well, the if they results change it, of the of the love if triangle. they change it, they can get it right in the remake. You see? Yeah, there you go. Right. Um, Patches, when you were into the screening tonight, was there a watermark on the screen? <laughs> no, there was not because oh. we're only a few days before release. You were I part see. of the criminal press the crew criminal that element. saw it that would, that would oh. film the screen. So they had to watermark your screen. I know that you're – maybe that's why you hated this film. You should no, full disclosure help, here. This is uh, we're we're gonna end up tabling. We're gonna have a longer discussion about this uh, in the full episode that we ended up not recording this week. Uh, but I was going to briefly mention that something happened at our screenings for this movie that I'd never seen before, which is Lionsgate, who had the Expendables three stolen from them and uploaded. Not only took our phones and threw them into a cardboard box, like without any sort of plastic wrapper, they were just like in a giant box with a post-it note on it. They put a watermark, a sizable watermark that said the name of the theater and the date on the screen and it stayed there the whole movie uh and it's the kind of thing that we get on screeners at home sometimes but given the distractions of watching at home and the nature of it it's just sort of another concession you learn to live with it but going to the theater where you go to avoid these sort of things and having the the projected work uh denigrated like that it's not only incredibly distracting especially for like the first 45 minutes of the movie it, it really did take me a long time to to ignore it uh, it's really disrespectful of the work. It's disrespectful of the audience. I was infuriated, and I was also infuriated that I didn't hear anybody else complaining about this at screenings before mine. Katie Rich. I mean, and, I saw. Uh, I thought about tweeting about it, but it seemed like a. I don't know. Whatever. I was complaining I, about it in my head. Yeah, I mean, you're complacent. I just, you're just part of the Pan Am problem. I just, I just hope that uh, you know. I would, you know, and I tweeted about it and. And Ryan Johnson, who d- does not follow me, you know, for humble brag purposes, he's not uh, hanging on my every word. But someone, I guess, retweeted my complaint, and he saw it and started tweeting Francis Lawrence. And uh, I have not heard anything more about it. But I would assume, um, one way or the other, not as a result of that necessarily, that this is not a lasting practice. But I think it would be really upsetting if it were. I saw another Lionsgate movie um, today. I think I don't uh, think you did. No, when did I saw another Lionsgate movie after <laughs> Hunger Games, and it did not have a watermark, but it was not the Hunger Games. Um, so yeah, I mean, anyway, they do that because that's their like. Price. Anyway, they're obviously right. if you're going to see this, if you're paying to see this movie in the theaters, it's not a problem for you. It's just a brief window into the uh, agonies of being a critic. But I thought that was pretty gross, and, and did not it, did not help my enjoyment of the movie by no means. By no means. And zero press screenings have ever been the source of a leak. So. Exactly, it's always been uh, as Ryan Johnson pointed out with whomever else he was talking to, uh, the result of post-production vendors. That's where every leak has come from, never a single one from a press screening. Um, so that was a really stupid thing to do because it just made the people whose only job it is is to like your movie uh, that much harder to like your movie. But good on you, Lionsgate. <laughs> that movie probably didn't get stolen. Um, yeah, I want to stick up for Mockingjay before we end this. I did enjoy it. I think if... I mean, you guys have both been much more lukewarm on the series than I have. So I think there's, you know, if you're not going to be converted by this movie, but I don't think most people would expect to be anyway. Um, Wait, was and, this but if, question? Was this filmed in IMAX at all? Is this playing in IMAX? Does anyone know? I thought about this I during the film. I think it's playing in IMAX, but I don't think it was filmed oh, in IMAX. Oh, because that was cool with Catching Fire. 
I mean, it had scenes that warranted IMAX. You know, Mockingjay mostly takes place inside. Yeah, they may have they may have realized that. I don't know anything about the IMAX equation on this, but I, I do. I am Interstellar is in its proximity, so I think the they were having trouble getting screened. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Because Interstellar is still out there. Well, maybe Mockingjay Part 2 will blow it up. It needs to. I thought this was a pretty yeah, suffocating Mocking, experience. Mockingjay Part 2 should be pretty nuts and adventurous, so there should be a lot going on. It looks like it's going to be like the Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2. I, I hope so. Both I hope actually, Sheen shows up to scream. And both Twilight Breaking uh, Breaking Bads, what are they called? <laughs> breaking Dawns breaking are Dawn. superior to I've, and every Hunger Games entry, I would actually argue. But wow. Yeah. So they have to step it up in this last installment. I'm waiting to be impressed. Don't get me wrong. I'm ready for these movies to be good. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence is a good actress. Well, I'm starting to doubt it based on this. I don't know. Yeah, you love Liam Hemsworth, but you don't like Jennifer Lawrence. It's true. Well, it's funny because David mentioned that she's supposed to do some purposefully bad acting in this movie, and that was bad. And then maybe it was just rubbing off on what was supposed to be like good in her Braveheart moments, and that was just not working for me as much i mean she does the tender stuff or just like chill conversation this is why the scene that i mentioned with like gail and her talking about kissing is the sweetest best moment in the movie uh she just does down to earth a lot better than like leader yeah tell me more about kissing gail make out go make out with liam hemsworth hunting in the meadow gail's just this guy i know he's got a girl's name this district smells like rat piss. My name is Katniss. I play the Hunger Games. I rock a bow and arrow. I hate the president. Snowy smells like a rose. They drew the name of my sis, but don't you fuck with Katniss. I'll kill you for sure. Okay, before we wrap up with things, we're going to talk about one more movie. Brief mention here. Uh, David, I don't know where you stand on this movie. I think you kind of like it. I really enjoy this film. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Long title. Um, what, what is the name? Uh, I, I don't have it in front of me of the director here. Anna Lily Amirpour. Yes, this film debuted at Sundance, a place that David hates, but it's another good film <laughs> to emerge from the 2014 Sundance. Uh, and it is a Iranian vampire western uh, that is also kind of a throwback to like the James Dean dramas of 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 that time and it's this weird genre mashup and i really dug it mostly because it's a great mood piece with an amazing soundtrack of iranian bands and also like sergio leone and neo morricone riffing folk rock bands and it was so strange and it's basically james dean meets a vampire uh in iran and i dug it yeah i mean it's uh i, I think it's i think it's very neat i think the pulp the pulpiness of it all uh, that Patches is getting at is, is front and center, as is the music, which is in, integral to the feel of the film as a whole. I really enjoyed the fact that you know they have this uh, in a flip side, this sort of teenage daydream version of Only Lovers Left Alive, where you have this uh, man stalking uh, teenage vampire maybe you know a few hundred years old. She looks like maybe in her late teens, early twenties, and she preys on the morally 
corrupt and and more oppressive of the men in uh, in bad city where she grows up and of course this is a film that's in farsi that is meant to sort of take place in this fictional city known as bad city which is sort of uh, amir poor's riff on sin city um on yeah, the outskirts like a border of tehran yeah. right but it's actually it was entirely filmed uh california, 25 mil- miles out of bakersfield in california and it's it's really interesting how she sort of built this world from scratch from the spare parts of her imagination and um while she would downplay a little bit its political underpinnings, uh, I, I think there's a lot of really interesting um, gender things going on here. I think uh, the the least satisfying thing for me about the movie was how it comes to a head and resolves. Um, I agree. But, and I don't uh, think it pushes that gender stuff enough. That's an interesting – I mean there are threads of that, but – it's really kind of overwhelmed in a pleasurable way by yeah. its mood and by the, the comic bookness of it all. Yeah, and there actually is a – she made a graphic novel as sort of a, a prequel um, and she's a, a multi-talented Her artist. Her framing in this graphic movie novel I think is, is really amazing. Neat. It feels like the frames of a comic book. She can get so – I feel like in indie films that I see, you never see people get really – do really big wide shots or just have, like, have perfect composition because they're kind of shooting the shit and trying to get it all in the can. And here's a film that just has like really dynamic shadowy black and white photography and big wide shots where the vampire lady is lurking in the background while dumb prostitute is, uh, is hanging out in the corner or whatever. It's great. I agree with the compliment for this movie. I don't necessarily agree about the broad generalization about not having wide shots. Oh, wait till you get films. to Sundance. But uh, yeah, no, maybe I should save my <laughs> breath. Uh, but yeah, no, I think it's a really neat movie. Well worth checking out, especially on the big screen. And her next movie is uh, about a cannibal who never learned not to play with his food. And she wants Jennifer Lawrence to star as the food. So to tie into our oh, Hunger wow. Games conversation, uh, while I think we would all be maybe a little bit too lucky for that to actually come to pass, um, who knows? fingers crossed but yeah a girl walks home alone at night is it how is it available to be seen it's definitely in theaters i don't know i don't know if it's going to vod or not if people are interested they can tweet at me and i'll tell them because i'll have the answer by then tweet at matt patches to tell you the answers to that and maybe other things yeah i don't think anything else worthwhile is going out (laughs) this week unfortunately everyone's uh everyone's afraid of vhs viral if that's your thing VHS what? Viral, the third VHS movie. Oh, yeah. Wolf. Those things keep happening. Um, all right. Well, that does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We will be back next week with a full slate of episodes, we promise. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I write all over the internet. Try and put everything on my website, mattpatches.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I just started as the associate film editor of Time Out New York. Yay! I I am also the editor of Large of Little White Lies magazine and can be found on the Dissolve and the AV Club and some other sites. My Hunger Games review, when I write it, will be up on Complex. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week.